Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Budget. 10 to watch on Wednesday. Wednesday's budget is massive. There's no two ways about it. Brexit poses a huge risk to our nation, but most especially to the UK economy. November's budget, coming as it does one month before negotiation crunch time, needs to set a plan that gives confidence to investors and confidence to the public that they won't be left to cope alone if Brexit forces a turn for the financial worse. Philip Hammond has already begun badly. In his round of pre-budget Sunday interviews and making a simple point that new technology creates demand for new employment, as well as deleting certain job roles, he managed to sound as though he thought the over 1 million unemployed people in Britain are a chimera dreamt up by Labour. Still, there is a lot more budget detail than just the role of new technology. So here are my 10 things to watch on Wednesday. Number one, growth. Growth matters, not just because it governs the technical definition of a recession, but because it drives expectation about the British economy. It is the canary in the mine. If growth looks shaky, all is not well. But in March, the OBR said, there's no meaningful basis for predicting the precise endpoint of the Brexit negotiations as a basis for our forecast. And further, there is considerable uncertainty about the economic and fiscal implications of different outcomes, even if they could be predicted. So, one of the primary growth questions on Wednesday will be exactly what the OBR or the Treasury are prepared to say about any firm conclusions in the Brexit talks, and what that means for the medium-term prospects for the UK. This is a crucial question about our future. However, we already know that the recent past hasn't been great. In the period of growth between 1997 and 2007, the UK's economy grew each year by about 25 to 3.5%. Since 2015, when our economy should have returned to normal times, growth has not breached the 2% mark. Growth has been too low already. So in addition to the Brexit risks, there has been a problem at the heart of our economy. And the underlying problem is a big one. That is issue number two, productivity. The OBO's forecasts for growth are reliant on their projections of our country's future productivity. And the simple version of this story is that post-crash productivity growth has been much lower than the pre-crash. The Bank of England has led the way in investigating this phenomenon to find out when it will get back to, in inverted commas, normal. 
However, it's genuinely hard to predict the impact of technological and societal change that drives productivity. So the bank and others are, for now, accepting that low productivity growth is the new British normal. So politically, it's obvious that we should expect measures to try and tackle our slow productivity growth. This explains Philip Hammond's weekend warm-up to the budget on investment in technology. However, the important thing to remember is that underneath the headline rate, the British economy can be separated out into sectors that have historically had high productivity growth, high-tech manufacturing, for example, and low productivity growth, social care or hospitality. Policy measures will only really help if they focus on low productivity sectors. We must enable people working in those sectors to gain new skills or use the ones they have already better. In that sense, forget about graphene and shiny new robots and all the tech bullshit and think more about issue number three, childcare. Childcare is economically crucial, but maddeningly, I think unlikely to be mentioned in this week's budget which is exactly why Labour must campaign on this issue. The Tories think that they have done their bit by not cutting Labour's free hours. But big reform really ought to be in anyone's budget. The current complex system of free hours, tax credits and tax breaks doesn't work. It's just too complicated. But much more importantly, it's simply not up to the task of helping parents be as productive as they could be. Imagine a low-paid parent, for example, who wants to take on a promotion and gain more skills at work. In the short term, that means longer hours, but their childcare is a fragile mix of free hours and family help. How can they do more at work without having to pay out more for childcare? It's a reality that keeps plenty of people in low-paid work when they're capable of more, women especially. In this sense, childcare is infrastructure. When, when the government spends on it, the accountants will merely mark it down as spending But universal childcare, I think, would fundamentally change how people could work. It would unleash a new capacity for people to earn and our economy to grow, which matters if you're middle class and earn a decent income. However, if you are at risk of poverty, the ludicrous underinvestment in UK childcare can have an impact on your family's income. And unfortunately, we are therefore likely to have to face issue four, rising child poverty and falling family incomes. I'm sure when Jeremy Corbyn rises to his feet on Wednesday to respond to Philip Hammond, he will decry in the strongest possible terms the rise in child poverty ahead. Hammond may try and get in first and argue that the Tories have a good record on poverty and inequality, which has fallen since the crash of 2008. To a certain extent, this is true, as the IFS say, between 2007-8 and 2015-16, real incomes rose by 7.7% at the 10th percentile, but fell at the 90th percentile. And what that means is that the very poorest did better, and the very richest did slightly worse. However, there are two points to be made in response. First, the Tories' progress on inequality actually looks fairly small if you take housing costs into the equation. And also, the losses in fact experience by those just slightly above the bottom 10%, which have been significant. But second, and much worse, is what the future looks like. We face an increase in the absolute child poverty rate, meaning that Britain will break the 30% barrier in the share of its children in poverty. This means an extra 400,000 children growing up without enough money to get a good start by 2021. How did this happen? 
while on current plans, a combination of the freeze on benefit rates and so-called welfare reform, including the policy of limiting the child-related element of tax credits and universal credit to two children. The Chancellor should therefore take an opportunity on Wednesday to undo the worst of this. We cannot stand by whilst child poverty grows. And if, in response to this disaster for our kids, the whole of the Labour Party on Wednesday does not emit a collective scream of protest at the abandonment of our national goal to end child poverty in a generation, then we do not deserve the membership cards we hold. To me, either we do something about this or we are useless. Worse than useless, in fact, if our rhetoric has only offered false hope. Therefore, the campaign that must commence post-budget is one not just to pause and fix universal credit processes, but to remove the policy injustices that look set to make children poor. We talk little of the two-child policy these days, except with mention to the iniquitous rape clauses that some have fought valiant campaigns against. But we should be fighting to get rid of the whole thing. I myself grew up as one of three in a household with insufficient cash, and the idea that financial help would have been there to support my sister and I, but not my little brother, is maddening and simply not true to the principles of beverages system. We cannot allow it to go on and not least because of the inequality that this creates for, and this is issue number five, women and BAME women especially. The sad truth about child poverty is that the people who really have to wrestle with these cuts are women. As Labour members have grown weary of pointing out, the Tories' cuts have impacted on women the most and particularly women of colour. But I think that this should be the budget year in which we say that having this analysis isn't enough. Seeing the budget through a gender or race lens is only any good if we have an idea of what better would look like. Now, a focus on public spending in specific sectors where women work, like social care, for example, could help tackle inequality. But we also need more attention on some of the long-running weaknesses in British economic life that drive inequality. So in addition to the policy of free universal childcare that I believe the Labour Party should adopt, we need to speak up much more for issue number six, skills. It's easy to be seduced by shiny new technology and to a certain extent when new apps make bank accounts function to help people save more or when autonomous vehicles make our roads safer, it's easy to see how these gains could improve our economic prospects. But this innovation operates against the drag of serious skills deficit in the UK. And this is not about coding. It's about core literacy and numeracy skills, which 5 million British adults lack. And 12 million are lacking necessary digital skills. We have wrestled with this productivity problem for too long. It's time we did something about it. Should the Chancellor unveil a grand project to upskill millions of low-paid workers? Yes, he should. Will he? I think it's unlikely. Worst of all, the skills problem we have is an example of what might be described as Britain's biggest economic problem, alongside, or more likely made worse by, Brexit. And that is issue number seven, regional imbalances. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that the areas of Britain that voted to remain in the European Union did so from a self-interested point of view. Actually, the data doesn't support that position, and this is especially true when it comes to trade. There are essentially two types of exporting place in the UK. Firstly, there are those industrial areas where there are large producers and whose service economy is related to that of manufacturing. These places tend to have economies that are deeply economically connected to Europe. 
Secondly, there are global trading places, cities that are mainly services-based and have connections across the world that are less exposed by Brexit and its potential barriers to European trade. Now, it should be obvious that the European manufacturing areas that dominate the north of England, Wales and Northern Ireland, while the global cities of London and Edinburgh are less dependent on purely European businesses for export, it should also be obvious that those places that are most at risk from Brexit are the places that voted for it in greater number, and that the Liberal elite of London and Edinburgh will be fine, whatever happens. Worse than this, the differential regional impact of Brexit comes on top of a deeply imbalanced economy already. Power centres in our capital city, and that draws wealth, investment and a public policy culture and machinery that tends to the every economic need of London, leaving too many out in the cold. This is the area of policy where any Chancellor must be truly radical. Shifting the operations of government out of London to break this policy-making monopoly. We need an industrial strategy for manufacturing where the paper is written on. That is, one not effectively torn up every time Boris Johnson opens his mouth. Further, we need a fundamental shift in the balance of investment. If, as is trailed, Hammond plans housing investment, he should focus on driving money to brownfield sites and opening up new towns, rather than pumping more money into overheated local housing markets in London, where residents have been under overdevelopment stress for far too long. A failure to be radical means that the UK will continue to see power and wealth accumulate in certain areas of the country, and these forces that created Brexit will never be undone. And all of these imbalances, the wealth of some versus the poverty of others, represent themselves in too little in tax revenues compared to the public services that deal with the consequences of poverty which has meant that the main problem that Tories set out to fix has never been resolved, as we still have. Issue 8. The budget deficit. This gap in our nation's fortune dominated the political debate whilst George Osborne was Chancellor. Hammond has taken a totally different approach. Almost his first act in the Treasury was to push out the deficit target to 2025, meaning that in March it looked as though there would be no possible fiscal test that the government could fail ahead of the election, and that Hammond had substantial spending headroom in case of emergencies. The problem is that deficit forecasts are very sensitive to growth projections, and as I said right at the beginning, the underlying new normal of low productivity doesn't look that good for growth right now. And that is before you get to the Brexit impact on investment. Should growth be lower than currently expected, the risk to the deficit is certainly there, and this could easily wipe out the space the Chancellor left himself in the first half of the year. But there is also a message here to Labour supporters. Given the pressing details we know on poverty, how can we take a chance on tax receipts? How can we fight austerity and crash out of the single market and customs union? It makes no sense. We should commit to the kind of Brexit that we need to deliver on our economic promises, because a deficit, should it worsen, has big consequences for issue number nine, public debt. Public debt in the UK is now worth over 1.5 trillion, which is 83% of GDP. Gordon Brown's debt test used to be to maintain a debt to GDP ratio of 40%. So this just shows you how far the UK has shifted out of the economic mainstream, that this level of debt has persisted through nearly eight years and two Conservative chancellors. George Osborne only barely reached his own target to see debt falling, not rising. And, and Hammond may just about do likewise. Clearly a good thing, not least as the cost of servicing that debt is some tens of billions. 
Our reliance on, as Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, has said, the kindness of strangers is a necessary weakness, but it is a weakness nonetheless. In the end, though, this is a relatively simple problem for the government compared to the massive headache that is... Issue number 10. Brexit. The word that on Wednesday will barely be said, but that underpins everything. Philip Hammond will be in a funny position on Wednesday afternoon. The previous three chancellors held positions of relative political strength in the cabinet. George Osborne as architect of Cameron's project, Alistair Darling as chancellor through the crash, who was an ultra-reliable steady hand, and Gordon Brown as architect of New Labour, with more influence over domestic public policy than almost anyone before in the cabinet. But not so for Phil. He is practically the last man standing of those who were part of the Cameron-Osborne approach. As Osborne's shadow chief secretary in opposition, he has been a permanent feature of the Tory government since 2010. And now he is the last defender in the cabinet for those trying to stave off no-deal Brexit. Because of his more pragmatic views, it was thought that he would be gone once Theresa May had got through the general election. But the public intervened, and now Hammond has relative political freedom, the inverse of May's intention. But despite that, he has zero economic freedom. The deficit headroom he thought he had left himself looks like it will come crashing down as hard Brexit has risen up the horizon. And now he has little room to reinvest in much-needed public services if he wishes to stay on course to close the budget hole. Sterling's performance over the past 12 months has been the stuff of legends, shedding value against the dollar. Major financial and industrial institutions could use a Brexit lifeline from the Chancellor. On Wednesday, the city will be watching his every move. Now would be a very good time to use the political space that he has in order to create some economic space and signal support for Anna Subri and a group of 15 to 20 Tories who see a better way out of this mess. He should back calls for the British Single Market and Customs Union membership. I doubt he will, though. I suspect he will say as little as he possibly can. The Brexit ultras, Rees Mogg, with Gove and Johnson as his cabinet enforcers, are listening, and mistakes could cost him. They are already fighting amongst themselves, and any more false moves after this weekend, and Hammond could make it ten times worse. On the other hand, from a Labour perspective, the cost of these Tories is now as dear as it has ever been in my life. Already, Brexit redundancies are on the horizon. I grieve for what could have been if Boris and his Brexit boss had not been allowed to sell false hope and rob our children of their future. In the end, it's not what Philip Hammond has to say on Wednesday that will really determine the future for my constituents and others. It's whether those of us who disagree with the Prime Minister can show a collective leadership that gets the country out of this rotten hole we're in. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with me, Alison McGovern. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.